Welcome back to the 54th episode of the OpVec Cast. I am Steve Cuff, and joining me today, I've got Sean Glennis. Hello. Hey, Sean. How's your weekend? Pretty killer. Pretty killer. Are you, are you hitting the clubs? Killing the clubs. Killing the clubs. Just grinding on thick honeys, right? Killing honeys. <laughs> Or a fifty cent divergence. Here <laughs> Wait, you know, you know, you don't like, you don't like grinding on the honeys, Myros. Come on. Uh, yeah, that's all I do. <laughs> and uh, as you might have guessed, Adam Myros is here. Uh, Myros, real quick question: What's your favorite movie where Kurt Russell is on a boat, and why is it overboard? Uh, I was going to say Captain Ron. Ah, yeah. Do you ever get Captain Ron and overboard confused? Pretty much exclusively. Yeah. I always forget, like, you know, Martin Short and Goldie Hawn are pretty much the same person in my brain. <laughs> also, not to be confused with Going Overboard, the first and shittiest Adam Sandler movie, which is quite an accomplishment. Uh, I wonder if it's been surpassed in recent years. I, I haven't seen it some rubber of the... Rubberface? Uh, no, it's, it's worse than Rubberface. Me and Myros tried to watch it years ago, and I don't... I don't remember anything except being just horribly upset the entire time. Not yeah, okay. It's real bad. It's unbelievably horrible. Uh, also it's here, more of his. Um, it's more of his Copper Mountain. They should probably like make a movie about Sandler's heroic journey to the screen and, and going overboard. Yeah, you know, I, I think I think that would be good. That would be actually be great. His great folly, which led to a career full of follies. Although he seems to be more respected than uh, other great auteurs of our time. Uh, we also have joining us today uh, Jake Tropila. Jake Tropila, who is yeah. going to answer the follow up question: Does Escape from L.A. count as a Kurt Russell boat movie because it has that weird surfing scene? uh hey steve how you doing um uh no i i, I gotta say no on that one surfboard is not a boat if we're gonna discuss okay. uh that's that's officially like yeah. optimism seeing canon surfboards are, are not a boat that hot is, dog that is out. but hey fun fact adam sandler showed up in some episodes of the cosby show i did not know that yeah he played one of uh theo's buddies wow if it involves adam sandler can it be classified as a fun <laughs> fact <laughs> Yeah, not not exactly the uh, the most fun. Uh well, so today we came together because. <laughs> Wait, Steve, I think you might be missing uh, a certain contributor. It's fine. Who, forget who about am it. I missing? Forget about it. Uh, <laughs> wait, wait, who else is here? Uh, Steve Parks Coleman. Here. I didn't even I know he was talked, here. I, I talked to you <laughs> before we started recording, and I asked you who you worked with, <laughs> and you answered. <laughs> Great to be back, by the way. I'm so happy to be I back thought, on another episode. It's been a while. I thought for some no, I thought it was Sean. I was like, and I, I know because his, you know, the the 
levels were moving and whatnot. And I didn't know that it was you. And I just assumed that Sean sounded weird because recording. But and, and then I thought in the back of my head, why the fuck does Sean care who I <laughs> And that makes this all makes perfect sense now. Uh, yeah, Stephen Coleman's here. Stephen Coleman, do you have a favorite uh, Kurt Russell on a boat movie? No. <laughs> that mean you, you enjoy them all Captain or Ron, you just don't like any? Captain Ron, good good answer, good answer. All right, I'm gonna crack a beer here. Uh, so we're we're all here together because Sean Glynis went on a magical journey. Uh, we have found the last man on Earth who has not seen Tommy Wiseau's The Room, and how convenient because uh, we've got a bunch of people here at Optimus Vaccine who love The Room, and a new movie came out called The Disaster Artist, which is about Tommy Wiseau and the making of The Room and some other shit. And it's really weird. And we should probably talk about it. So, Sean, you you actually you sat down and watched The Room. This that week, is, is false. That That's false. You didn't you didn't actually no. watch it. So, OK, see, I thought you were going to watch yeah, this, it after you, this. You've only this was the, the original disaster. plan is to go see The Disaster Artist um, to see sort of like how it would look like to somebody who hadn't seen the room right to see like if it would you know had something to you know stand on its own legs um so i wanted to offer that perspective and then watch the room and after i think i think the first thing i said to myros after uh the disaster artist ended was i'm never watching the room <laughs> see and that, there's there's your mistake I that's that's your mistake the room is beautiful someone uh, and this is interesting because, one, you're friends with all of us. So the fact that you haven't seen this at some point is just mind-boggling to me. And the other thing is you've you've seen and enjoyed the work of uh, amazing American auteur Neil Breen. Um, I think I've drunkenly thrown on John DeHart's Get Even at least yeah, 75 man. times while you were in <laughs> my apartment. Uh, I, I have subjected you to just untold levels of dumb shit. And here we are. You have never seen the room, nor apparently do you want. To. No, uh, the disaster artist left a bad taste in my mouth. But um, but I, and I know they're different products. But I felt like I had watched all of the room, and having seen the disaster artist, it just it, it, the the allure, any allure that was still there, kind of like left. Um, but I I I was thinking about Neil Breen and I don't know if we want to get into it now or later, but <clears throat> I really do enjoy Neil Breen's movies. Um, but there, I think there's a distinct difference between, uh, most likely between, uh, Tommy Wiseau and Neil Breen, um, uh, that, that allows me to, to like them. He, Neil Breen just seems like a complete, um, wealthy, um, he's not an idiot. He's just really bad at making movies. Well, uh, yeah, that's that's debatable. Um, I mean, he's just a normal. Like, he's I'm just a very up. normal man who has a lot of money and decided that he's he's a filmmaker. And, and, and Tommy yeah. Wiseau is not a normal man. It seems. No, uh, again, I'm glad that you decided to uh, <laughs> label Neil Breen as a normal man because I'm I'm not sure. I mean, Jake has actually met. I've, him. I've spoken and interviewed with Neil Breen. He is not a normal man. Please tell us more. Yeah. And and he well he's he has the the delusion of someone who thinks he's doing great things for the world through his art 
And uh, it's that sort of, um, it's it's that kind of mindset that he and Tommy Wiseau both have. Yeah, they're both wealthy, but um, he he's very, very socially awkward when I spoke with him. And he, but he also has like this very, I don't know, this kind of full of himself better than the world attitude. And he thinks he's, he's doing right and striving to make it a better place. But he's um, he's he's completely out of it. He when I spoke with him, he's he's a bonker, okay. bonkerous person. If you could, yeah. well, and another thing too is, I think, and this comes through in the disaster artist, and it certainly comes through in the room, and even more so in the things that Tommy Wiseau has done since the room, which I would not recommend to anyone. But uh, Tommy Wiseau just wants people to love him. I think that's kind of his thing. He wants to be respected and loved. Whereas Neil Breen has, I don't know, he's a, a, he's an auteur with a very um, obvious <laughs> political ideology. <laughs> that just gets, I don't know what the fuck is political ideology. Uh, he, no, yeah, that's one thing he brought up when I spoke with him. He doesn't specifically single out Republicans <laughs> or Democrats. It's just uh, bad people and good people. I mean, he obviously has a problem. Yeah. He, he has a problem with uh, with uh cultural institutions right like uh banks <laughs> mainly just mainly just yeah, bank, banks yeah he has this sort of like elementary school understanding of the world that and and good guys as as shown in his films basically are just him so and i think i think wazo is kind of the same in, in some ways. I think you have to be a little bit delusional to make these sort of transcendentally great bad films because they they feel so detached from normalcy yeah. and reality. And yeah. I, the thing, I, another parallel I draw is that they, they both seem to harbor a, a great deal of hate and rage within them that, that gets <laughs> shown on screen in this bizarre way. Sure, and and they both there's there's anger in them, and the other thing is is a lot of their anger that isn't directed at actual people or characters in the films, it's directed at, like you said, kind of like an elementary school understanding of like large American institutions, whether that's politicians or banks or technology uh, and, and what those things mean. And so in Neil Breen's movies, he, he's always like a rogue hacker type of guy. But at the same time, he absolutely like hates technology and he hates politicians and things like that. And, uh, I think in Fateful Findings, which many would argue is Neil Breen's finest moment, sure. uh, one of the most jarring things in Fateful Findings is at the end, because you have this like, completely incompetent, weird uh, movie about magic and relationships and also computers and books and things that he doesn't like. But at the end, uh, Neil Breen's character, <laughs> and, and this is exactly what he says he does, like I'm not simplifying this. He hacked into all of the secret government systems where he then outed a bunch of politicians who, and the final five minutes, spoiler alert, uh, all of these politicians stand in front of a podium with a green screen of like the White House behind them, and they all just shoot themselves in the head. Like, <laughs> that's, the, it's, it is like the darkest ending imaginable. Yeah. For a yeah. Well, if you weren't like laughing your ass off, which yeah. you, you are, but I think it's, I think it's uh, up there with the uh, Godfather's uh, baptism sequence. I would like to point out anybody <laughs> listening right now, you can always go back to episode thirty-one, the Breencast. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
<laughs> Very true. We got to we got to get off of Breen here. The the only other thing I'd I'd posit on that front is that there's just you you can tell neither of these gentlemen had a a very fulfilling love life, and uh, both films are are kind of problematic toward women. Yeah, well, I mean, to be fair, Neil Breen looks like a melted android, and Tommy Wiseau <laughs> looks like a, I don't know, like an evil vampire sadist. I I don't. He's the most villainous Cro-Magnon man I've ever seen in my entire yeah. life. And you can tell that they've they've always been sort of rejected outsiders and, and have kind of lived unhappy lives. And is this something that something uh, is it. interrogated in The Disaster Artist? Is no. No. I had a great time watching The Disaster Artist. It was in a packed theater. It was funny. Everybody was laughing. Everybody's having a good time. But I'm not going to sit here and say that this movie like is enlightening in any way or interrogates anything about Tommy Wiseau. Um, and, and that's kind of one of the reasons why it's it's a good movie to talk about on this podcast because it's almost like they love the room and they love Tommy Wiseau or at least the idea of Tommy Wiseau so much that it's difficult for them to really be critical of Tommy though at this point and it's also interesting too because the the one thing that I really didn't like about the disaster artist was uh the beginning and mm-hmm. the yes end. yes and yes and in the, in the beginning for those of you who haven't seen it Annie and, Hall told opening spoilers, Kristen Bell uh, talking about how cool the room is yeah, that's that's pretty much it. It's it's Kristen Bell, it's J.J. Abrams, it's all these famous people, and they're like, oh, we love The Room. The Room is so funny. The Room is so good. So it's almost like, as filmmakers, like like James Franco felt that he had to set the movie up by saying, look, this is this is a movie that needs to be made. Because Here's celebrities why. like it. <laughs> Which seems... Yeah, because celebrities... Yeah. yeah. There and- was... I actually heard an interview with Rogan on... Uh- how did this get made? Which I'll I'll get into criticizing <laughs> that particular podcast a bit later. But um, I, I he he made a specific point that they they basically added that intro because audiences didn't understand why they should care about this, and it's like maybe a better tag would be to to do some <laughs> yeah. script reworks because you're you're not. You're not telling the story in the way that I give a shit about it, and it doesn't help me that celebrities like and the room that doesn't like the fact that it's a complete no. paratext this this is not its own movie in in my opinion and if they're like well we're not telling a story that is like meaningful enough on its own terms but it has to be in relation to this other movie that just kind of like speaks to a lot of my issues with it sure and the ending also kind of falls into a similar problem where uh, so after after you get the the end, uh, before the credits roll, there's a pretty long like it's probably five minutes long. This series of sequences, at least, yeah, yeah, like thirty minutes. Yeah, it, it did feel like a very long time. Uh, there was this these side by sides. So on the left, you would have an actual like you know famous iconic whatever you want to say scene from the room. You know, I'm tearing you apart, Lisa. Yada yada yada. <laughs> Or you're, t- I'm tearing you apart. Yeah, because Tommy was always a vampire. No, you're tearing me apart, Lisa. Uh, and they run it side by side with you know James Franco's Tommy Wiseau doing the part. So it's almost like, look, see, we did it just like them. 
And it's almost as if they thought that, like, as a person, as a character, Tommy Wiseau wasn't believable enough. And they somehow had to, like, ground him and say, no, look, when we were making fun of this in the movie, this is how it actually was. And that seems like a really weird thing to kind of tack on. Yeah. And it's also kind of like, oh, are we supposed to to be impressed with, like, your skills as a team to create the same exact thing? Like, okay, I assume you had the budget and and professional to, like do that whatever and I, I was talking about that with somebody and they're yeah. like oh well it was a great way to do the credits and it's like well that wasn't actually the credits like that was, that was no. it wasn't the credit it wasn't an after credit scene it was part of the main yeah film. And, and that speaks to like a, a, a yeah. something that yeah. um this is a piece that somebody wrote a couple years ago but about how like movies that always end on these clips pieces um, oftentimes the argument was that they didn't feel comfortable enough in, in the film. Like it's, it's always with comedies and they didn't like, they don't feel comfortable either with like how funny the movie is or the ending because comedies resolving themselves usually isn't very funny. So they put on these clips to like make people laugh on the way out. So they like have, you know, a distorted, uh, memory. I mean, that, and that might be a stretch for this, but I definitely thought about that. Sure. Has has anyone else read The Disaster Artist? I oh, have. I bought it for you for your birthday a few years ago. Yeah, and I've read it. So, Jake, you've also read it. I I think that was my greatest disappointment in the film is that I had a bad feeling about it from the start. Just the tone of the trailers to me felt very mean-spirited. And, and mm-hmm. that actually isn't the movie we got. I, I don't think it was mean-spirited. It just was barely a movie it, it, it didn't really dive into much of anything um it and the, the book I, I don't want to be one of these people who says the book was better than the movie but it was just a totally different animal it was a really enlightening book and it really it depicted this sort of rich and very flawed relationship between Sestero and Wizzo and how that deteriorated and, and more of the motives behind that. And this didn't really have any of that. They, they didn't, the relationship didn't make sense in the film. There was nothing no. to enrich it. <laughs> and, and that's not to say, cause I've, I've read a lot of interviews with uh, Greg Sestero and he said that, you know, as, as strange as their relationship is, in a lot of ways, it doesn't make sense to him why they're friends, which is fine. But I, I think the movie could have dove into that a little bit more. And the other thing about this, too, is, again, and I had a great time and I laughed my ass off. But the things that I liked weren't scenes that I was familiar with from the room. It was just the weird stuff in between where they had an opportunity to maybe dig a little bit deeper and didn't. But like the part that really sticks out to me is... Uh, right before they're about to shoot the sex scene and Tommy is, or, you know, Tommy played by James Franco is clearly nervous and freaking out. And he said that he doesn't want a closed set. He wants everyone there to watch him do this sex scene. And then he's, he's walking around like naked with a sock on his dick. And (laughs) then he gets, girl and he's just like what is this what is wrong with you and she's just like it's my body (laughs) he's just like a complete dick to her and there's all there's this like dark undercurrent that the movie doesn't really want to touch but yeah and the book definitely does the the book is not afraid to call him a monster at times yeah 
it's it's all these things like the little things. Uh, the other thing that really stuck out to me too, and I don't know if this is in the book or not, but uh, the parts where Tommy is like rolling up to Greg's house to pick him up. And I think the first time he's just like, oh, are all your friends kids or something like that? Uh, just, you know, kind of highlighting how weird and detached he is as a person. And then the other time when Greg decides to move to L.A. with Tommy and Greg's mom comes out to see who this Tommy guy is. And he's just like, oh, yeah, I'm I'm same age as Greg. And it's like, you're you're 19. And he's like, yeah, you know, <laughs> like, what the he's fuck? like, he's, he's, he's the, the character is an, an, an enigma for sure. And <clears throat> Um, it's like, I guess it's interesting on paper, but like, I want to know something and we'll get to like a comparison film, uh, later, but like, I want to know something about him or I want to know your idea of what he is or your ideas about whatever his artifice. But this was just look at this enigma and, um, I couldn't grab onto anything, but, um, uh, also as somebody who didn't have the context of the room or, or the disaster artist. Um, and just reading what this movie was, I, I read it as Tommy Wiseau was slightly mentally handicapped because of a car accident. Um, Mm -hmm. that is, that is, yeah, that is alluded to in the book. Um, that he was, yeah, he was, had an open. Okay. So um, then my idea was that like, maybe the money, like, Maybe the money came out of a settlement from that. I don't know. But either way, like the fact that he was uh, probably mentally handicapped and he was also played played that way, like it didn't make it didn't make me interested in laughing at him. Like, um, I don't know. I just didn't always feel comfortable. Uh, like I, I didn't I don't know. There was a disconnect for me there to, that kept me from having fun. And maybe that was just because I didn't know about Tommy Wiseau. So I don't know where James Franco was coming from. But I kind of put that on. James Franco. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, I think that the thing is the he is a mysterious sort. Like no one really to this day knows where he's from or where he got his money. I mean, there's a lot of illusions in the book about him actually being quite a successful businessman, which again, yeah. follows that same sort of John DeHart, uh, Neil Breen mold. These people can function in society. This is something off there but um yeah there's there's a lot of theories about where the money actually comes from and one is that he's like a successful real estate guy uh, one is that he got a big settlement after his accident uh, there's a theory that he was like a yo-yo salesman in san francisco and made a yeah. lot of money somehow and, one where he's uh, importing and exporting jackets from italy yeah, yeah denim, uh, something with denim he does a lot of yeah. denim work. yeah denim stuff uh there's another one where people were convinced at some point that he was like to make the room he extorted money from his rich esl teacher which is uh, kind of weird <laughs> so yeah there's there's a lot of different theories out there but again like nobody knows where he's actually from uh i think he was actually on jimmy kimmel and he said that he was originally from poland and then lived in france and then was he considers himself from new orleans uh, but that was that was the first time that he had even like really opened up that much about it. And but people they don't know anything about him, which is is fine. I mean, but they made that like the source of conflict in the relationship with Sestero. Yeah. When when we're watching what should be the source of conflict, which is him behaving very inappropriately and uh, driving Sestero's girlfriend to leave him and. 
he basically kind of co-opted the guy's life and there's there's that drama just sits there it's not utilized in the film at all in when they have their big sort of dramatic scene of, of a falling out uh younger franco confronts older franco with you know uh how old are you and where'd you get that money it's like well that's not why he's upset with Wizzo, and that's not what he would confront him with, and it doesn't really make narrative sense. Mm. Uh, I got a question. Yeah. Coleman, I know you're sitting out there. I am. I know because I forgot about Now I remembered you, and I'm sorry, and I feel bad. <laughs> uh, anyways, did, did you did you get a chance to see I the disaster? I did not know, and I don't want to now. <laughs> 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 Well, two of these guys really liked it. Now, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I, I'm, sim- I'm similar to Steve. I've been a longtime fan of the room, and after I discovered it, I basically spent many making or many waking nights exposing the movie to other friends of mine, just so that they can. Because ex- I was at I used to go to film school, and so you? we were just amazed at. So, what did you do with your sleeping what nights? <laughs> I dreamt about this movie. Yeah, I probably slept. But yeah, I spent many because I've been to several midnight screenings. I've uh, met and played football in front of the theaters with Tommy Wiseau before. So I'm a I would consider myself a diehard fan of this movie. And when the Disaster Artist came out, I jumped on the book and read that. And so I was I was I was actually very cautious about seeing this movie because kind of like what Adam was saying, I I had a lot of reservations about James Franco doing a Tommy Wiseau impersonation for a hundred or so minutes. But I, with the exception of what Steve said, the opening and really most of the last third of the movie are two huge missteps. I really thought it was delightful. And I think uh, Franco, surprisingly enough, I think he delivers a good performance as Tommy and he's not playing him as a caricature or just sort of aping on his, his mannerisms or anything. I think he treats him like a human being. And I think that's it kind of, kind of impressive that he, pulls it off and and also i think dave franco gives his career best form performances uh as greg sestero and because i don't i don't think i've ever seen dave franco i don't think i've ever liked him in anything that i've seen him in and i saw both of those i saw both of those nights what <laughs> uh, well, say, you know, yeah, i think what i'm gathering nerd, though nerd. is that for two people who are diehard disaster i'm sorry diehard fans of the room feels to me just by listening to this conversation that the disaster artist is just catering to the fan of the room and maybe not to anybody else. It's just trying to be faithful to this source that people hold very dear to themselves and they didn't want to like fuck with that vision or fuck with anybody's memories. It it is. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of throwaway lines in the movie. Like, um, like when they're filming the sex scene in the movie, Seth Rogen's watching it on a monitor and he says, why does it look like he's having sex with her belly button? which is like a joke that room fans made up when they're having sex. Cause it actually looks like in the movie, Tommy Wiseau is penetrating Lisa's belly button. So there's a little bit of that, but I will say as I was walking out of my, the packed auditorium, there were two kind old ladies in front of me and one of them leaned over to the other and said, now I want to see the real movie. So it, it could work for some people. Obviously it did. I mean, it has fantastic reviews, but it, it's, it kind of perplexes me because I don't know. I, I didn't, think franco james franco was bad uh i mean but the character just wasn't given anything there wasn't any There's, inner life so it, it was hard to 
it's hard to not view him as there's as also just a some clown. pacing issues i thought mm-hmm. like uh actually i saw uh somebody else uh, articulated it well saying like it felt like franco like fast forwarded the movie like five different times and i definitely felt that watching like um there's like a time card for like a different date and it, it just didn't seem it, 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 i don't know it, it just seemed very um like conjuncted or, or just like um elliptical but not not like for a reason or it didn't it, it just didn't seem very seasoned i i walked out being like this could have been something that somebody put on netflix at like in the background of like game night or you know like a get together that is just kind of on and it's like oh that's cute uh but not a whole lot else yeah the other aspect that really got to me and i think it's it's highlighted by that open but it just the whole thing felt like a fucking indie comedy circle joke like oh we found this we get it it's like the fucking casting pisses me off it's like that i'm glad the movie was able to highlight the how did this get made because after they they were the ones who discovered the room (laughs) in 2011 (laughs) which let's uh also i heard that that tumblr is mad because james franco casted dave franco but there's like some there's some like talented mr ripley homosexual like latent like desire stuff there and like slash fiction and they are having a trouble doing that with uh the disaster artists because they're brothers Oh well, I mean it's Tumblr. Just just break down that wall, make, make Mr. Gorbachev. Tear <laughs> down this wall. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the final frontier for Tumblr. I think is yeah, uh, I'm sure know, there's nothing on that. Tumblr that uh, has touched that. I don't know. You'd be surprised. You can you can get there. Just fall down a hole. You'll you'll find it eventually. That is a uh, that's interesting. You say that, John, because one of the distinct things I remember from the book. Is that in their in their relationship or the early goings with Tommy and Greg? Uh, Tommy tells Greg about this a brilliant movie that he's seen in the theaters like six or seven times, and so he finally he takes Greg to go see it, and it's the talented Mr. Ripley. And uh, he he just spoiler alert he thinks that the scene where um, Matt Damon kills Jude Law on the boat is like where their relationship is headed towards, and uh, he also thinks that a lot of uh, like his character. Uh, Greg sleeping with his uh, future wife, uh, Lisa, in the movie of The Room, he thinks that a lot of that he feels is part of like autobiographical on Tommy's behalf, that he thinks he's betrayed him somehow. But uh, yeah, Tommy's a, Tommy is a very, he's a very creepy and manipulative person in the disaster artist of the book. Um, and I, I think it does show in, in parts of um, uh, the disaster artist, the movie. Yeah, right. But it's also painted with this like broad, happy brush of, and then they're best pals forever. And it's like, well, that's not what I got out of the book. But <laughs> well, I well, I mean, they're still they're still good friends. They're in yeah, a well, called best friends. I don't think they were friends when he wrote the book. I think they. I think it's at this point uh, naive to say that it's not a financial relationship. What, what were you going to say, else? Steve, about yeah. the yeah. whole, like, yeah. you made it, or not you made it weird. Uh, how did this get made? Oh. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that, you know, the room kind of blew up around, like, 2011, 2012. That's when a lot of screenings started happening. But I was I was curious for the people who have seen the room uh, what your first experience with the movie was. Because for me... 
it was kind of cool because <laughs> this is when I was living with Myros actually in Kalamazoo. And this was, God, it must've been 10 years ago. It was probably uh, 2007. And uh, I was, I was like upstairs in my room and Myros is downstairs watching TV and he just comes up. He's like, Cuff, Cuff, you got to come downstairs. You got to see this thing. Adult Swim is just playing this weird fucking movie. You got to, you got to come down and watch. <laughs> like, what do you, t- what, what could possibly be going on at like one in the morning right now that is this important? And then I come down and Adult Swim, like completely unannounced, just like wiped their programming for the evening. And at midnight or 1 a.m. or whatever, they just played the room. And I just sat there and it was about like, I, I think I walked down, uh, mid sex scene. And it was the one where they're playing that song, which is like, you are my rose, you are my rose. <laughs> and uh, I was just like, oh, God, this is this is special because, uh, you know, Myros and I have uh, we have a, our, our, our life mission for the both of us is to find transcendent garbage. And uh, we, we really we reached the apex of the mountain that night. Uh, so- yeah, I feel a little guilty that I hadn't even got to it earlier because I know I had seen on YouTube uh, the rooftop scene even a couple years prior to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we kind of dropped the ball on that one. So that that was that was your first time seeing it too, Myros. Uh, Jake, how about you? Like, what what was when was the first time that you encountered the room? So I discovered it from a movie theater. I went to see a movie. For, I don't even remember the movie, but before it, there was a trailer for The Room. It it showed the movie and it said The Room coming one night only this this Saturday. And there's a poster for it. And I'm like, oh, what is this movie? And the poster, like in the lobby, was Tommy Wiseau's green headshot. And I'm like, what what is this? This is really weird. So I went home and I looked it up and it discovered it has like this infamy as this Citizen Kane of bad movies. This was like, I think I'd mentioned this is 2008. And so I started telling some of my coworkers about it. And then two of them were curious enough to buy it from Amazon. And then they watched it. And then the next day they brought it to work. And then they said, we watched it. And then they gave it to me and they said, here. And I'm like, oh, wow, I can borrow this. And then they said, no, you can keep it. And then they walked away. <laughs> so since then, I've, I had the, I've had the movie and I just showed it to everyone who I can. And um, yeah. And then a couple of years later, it was... Um, it was playing on Adult Swim, like you said, and so I showed uh, I showed my stepbrother that at the time. And the sex scenes on the Adult Swim version are really funny because they play the whole scene out, but then they use black bars to censor the screen. Yeah, but then awesome. some, but sometimes they put like a a black bar across the entire screen, except for like maybe the top left corner where you can't see anything. <laughs> yeah, I wonder when the great. first year is that they showed that. How do all these great like? Wizzo Space Ghost uh, oh. segments as well. It was it, it, a great production. Was, He's also been on the Tim and Eric. That's where show. I first saw it. Oh yeah, like yeah. 2009, 2010. Awesome, awesome show. And he like guest directed an episode of Tim and Eric. I think. Oh, that was pretty <laughs> true. For um, all those who were wondering, now you know. Uh, I'm so glad I got to put that in your know. ears. Was- yeah. Okay. okay. The movie. The movie was Red Cliff. That was the movie. Ooh. Now you uh, know. John I'm going to add that to the uh, Steve Coleman Wikipedia page the first time Steve saw the room. I think that's a that's a good subheading for your Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah. Cool. All right. That's fine. I just I want to get your permission before I start editing. Anyways, uh, yeah, one more thing that I, I – this is my Columbo? other big takeaway, uh, especially – One more what, thing. Colum- what are you talking about? <laughs> my just wife one loves you. <laughs> just one more thing. <laughs> so, 
and and this this really it really drove home this point for me after I watched another movie that we're going to talk about in a second, Ed Wood. Um, when I was watching the disaster artist, as much fun as I had with it, there were two thoughts that were running through my head, and the first one is, does a movie about the room and Tommy Wiseau does it work better if it's a documentary? And I think the answer is probably yes, like an enthusiastic yes, especially because to my knowledge. There is like dozens and dozens of hours of behind the scenes footage from the shooting of the room that's just sitting around somewhere that I would love to see. I don't know. So that that ended. I, well, I, and the other, I th- haven't seen the room, so I, oh. I'm not like the the authority on this. But like uh, even even that, like I guess I would I would ask like what is the thesis? Because that's my problem with the disaster artist is like I just don't understand what it's doing other than like. A bunch of friends having fun making a movie about a movie that they had fun watching. Um, but like, I, I think we'll, we'll, we're going to talk about Ed Wood, which is, I guess, an example of like, you could have made a disaster artist like this, uh, in my opinion, as long as your heart was in the right place and you had something to say and the, you know, the, the people making it actually were like, you know, good craftsmen. Um, I mean, Tim Burton was at that point more than just like a good craftsman but had like something uh, original to say and in like a new style and james franco's movie is just like extremely bland to me yeah well and that's that's the other thing that i was thinking about too is you know is is there an ed wood tim burton style movie that can be made about tommy wiseau or the room and the conclusion that i came to is probably right. not and the reason is is we're looking at a very specific period of time in Tommy Wiseau's life and a very like one specific movie whereas and, and the other thing is is after he made the room it it pretty quickly became this huge cultural phenomenon and now he has embraced that and everything he has done since that has been you know something like uh his TV series Neighbors which is utter dog shit because Tommy Wiseau has become self-aware. He knows that people think he's silly. So the the room is unintentionally funny because it's so ridiculous and serious about itself. Whereas Neighbors is like pulling fucking teeth trying to watch it because it's it's like, ha ha, you know, you're supposed to laugh at me. I'm Tommy Wiseau. Look at me be silly. It's like, no, man, this is this is the Sharknado factor where if you're making shit conscious, like if you're consciously saying I'm going to make garbage because it's funny, then it's not funny. It, it doesn't it doesn't work because you lack that sincerity. And the thing is with that wood is, you know, the movie follows him and he's this weird, quirky guy who is a complete and utter failure in everything that he does. And he befriends uh, Bella Lugosi, who is this, you know, former big Hollywood star who is now addicted to morphine and is a shell of his former self. And he kind of like puts together this misfit cast of people to make these shit movies. And Ed Wood eventually dies alone of like alcoholism, basically, in like the late 70s, early 80s. Pretty much a complete unknown. And then slowly people start to reevaluate uh, his career and his life and, and they discover how interesting of a guy he was and how just hilarious and fun his movies can be. But well, I think that the major story and Tommy Wiseau doesn't have that broader story. Yeah. The major difference for me is that 
that sort of band of misfits that it's it's a movie about edward becomes a movie about outsider cinema and this sort of counterculture and these fun weird characters and it wouldn't be a very successful film if ed wood had only befriended a (laughs) one bland jock type fellow entire life (laughs) yeah i mean the the other uh i mean there are many great things about ed wood like i personally like fell in love like i hadn't seen it in almost like um 15 years and i fell in love with it and there are lots of things i i thought about and and want to continue to think about as as i watch it more but one of the uh, really nice things about it is that it does something purposefully to flatten taste hierarchies. So, like, you know, Ed Wood is in love with uh, Citizen Kane and Orson Welles is like this this prodigy who made this great movie, um, like, first out of the bat, whatever. And um, he believes that he is just as good as citizen or as orson welles you know like and tim burton or the movie itself like really believes that these movies are something to treasure um it's not it's not being like well you know he made this movie that that's kind of silly like it's it it does so much to celebrate uh b cinema and like trash cinema and that that being juxtaposed with the citizen kane is i think really important um I mean, it's not even fair to compare this with Disaster Artist almost. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Ed Wood does this thing where it juxtaposes like the way that studio cinema treated Lugosi and how it it basically gutted him and and the way that this sort of B underground cinema was just such a culture (laughs) of inclusiveness and warmth. And it's just... Such a great dichotomy. Uh, wonderful film that I'm I'm with you. I hadn't seen it in, boy, 15 years almost, and it, it's just great. Yeah. Uh, I think the other thing that Ed Wood really has going for it, too, is it's got this great aesthetic to it. So, I mean, it's, it's shot in black yes. and white, and it feels like I mean, it, it's a very contemporary film for its time, but at the same time, it clearly has a really firm understanding of the language of B cinema and just cinema in general from, you know, like the 1950s. Um, and the problem with the disaster artists is I think they were, they were going at least in, in some scenes, they're going for a similar effect. And you can see this at the end where they're, they're sort of side by siding, you know, here's James Franco, here's Tommy Wiseau. Look, it's the same. Uh, but the problem with the room is it's aesthetically repugnant, which works well, for it as you know a fun movie to to you know drink some beers and watch with your friends but it's so like flat and lifeless and it it doesn't have the 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 magic or or the the pop that ed wood has when you watch it yeah i was i this this is only the second time i'd ever seen ed wood and i loved it all the more than the first time and yeah one of the things that really stood out was how really goddamn good ed wood the movie looks um, it's crafted by obviously with somebody who has really much care and passion for this, the B movies of the 1950s. And, and yeah, the disaster artist, it, it has like this sort of, I don't know, this kind of fly on the wall documentary aesthetic that, um, and, and I think the, the thing about copying the scenes from the room is that they're just meticulously restaging them. But, um, 
but the Ed Wood never like feels like it's just restaging sequences. Like it's really made with the love of B cinema infused in the, in the director. And I think, I think the, the black and white cinematography is just stunningly gorgeous throughout. It's really quite exquisite yeah, to I, watch and look at. Wow. Makes me and there's just so much. Sweater. I, like, like I said, like disaster yeah. is, is, is just like a paradox, but for, for the room, but, um, but Ed Wood, like, uh, you don't need to have seen, like, any Ed Wood movies. But, like, I mean, it has so much to say, like, even with just, yeah. like, the Landau character. Um, that, it, like, Landau is, is amazing in it. And um, there's so much, like, pain. and But it, it's, like, infused in this comedy campiness that um, it's just, like, such a great tone of balance that that it's able to, to strike. But, I mean, it, it, just, like, that character alone, there there's something there that just stands alone and he it's it's heartbreaking at times um and then you have like um you have the bill murray character who's very like tertiary but um is one like really funny but also like has his own like heartbreaking story like trajectory that isn't milked for like tears or anything like that but like myro said it's like this gang of misfits that um it gives like it gives equal weight to the humanity of them all. And, uh, the disaster is just kind of like, let's laugh at this guy. Like, I, I don't know. Like I've heard people say that they, they felt it was a warmer movie than, than I did, but, uh, or critics or whatever. But, um, I don't know. It, it just it was just like, I, I don't need to watch you recreate this scene that I've seen with like a million times without actually see, sitting down to watch the movie. Like I, I get it. I get Oh, hi Mark. Like, it works on its own. I don't need to, I don't need it to be rendered through. I don't know. This is just me saying that I, I think it's pointless, but um, that, I, I, I don't know. That's, there's something really wonderful about um, discovering these movies, like the room or Neil Breen, like, and feeling like you discovered them and that nobody knows about them. Like they, they, because they exist out of nowhere and then all of a sudden they're there. And so to see that sort of like obliterated through the disaster artist, it, it just kind of like opens up this world that felt pro- pro- that feels private. And um, even though I hadn't seen the room, I, I could definitely like identify that being like a, an issue for me. Um, I don't know. How did you guys that had actually seen it feel? It, it, uh, you know, I'd, I'd agree with that sentiment and I've expressed it in different uh situations to cough because we have spent so much time combing through bad stuff just to find that that moment where it transcends and it stuck out most to me when we watched uh a movie we've covered on here briefly uh silent night deadly night uh and it it also it came in one of these two-sided dvds where on the back side they had silent night deadly night 2 and that film is like 50%, maybe even more than 50% of it is just footage from the first film. <laughs> oh, but there's this, yeah, there's this moment like two thirds of the way through the movie uh, that later became a meme. And it's just this guy who cannot act and has never been in another movie screaming garbage day and going on some sort of crazed shooting spree. And it's it, it was just like, what the fuck? Oh, my God. It, it was this moment of elation. And mm-hmm. and it's just 
I always feel cheated that it became a meme and you could just go on YouTube and be like, oh, garbage day. And, and you don't have the context of the work invested in finding that. Well, I think that that touches on on two things, which is a lot of times when you're combing through trash to find something that's as good as, uh, you know, the room or Miami connection or something like that. Um, you mostly just find unwatchable trash. Uh, and, and when you do find something good, a lot of times it's good because of moments, not because of the whole film. Whereas The Room and uh, Fateful Findings is another good example. It's not just moments. It's the whole package. And it sucks when that gets chopped up and just sort of, you know, delivered in bite-sized pieces because – as funny as the garbage day scene from Silent Night, Deadly Night 2 is on its own, and I'm sure everyone has seen it. And if you haven't, go to YouTube, type garbage day, and I guarantee it's the first thing that comes up. Mm. But the fact that you essentially, like, let's say you have this double-sided DVD from 2006 or whatever the hell me and Myros watched this for the first time. <laughs> so you just watch Silent Night, Deadly Night, which is pretty fun on its own. You know, it's it's solid. And then you're like, okay, well, that was pretty entertaining. Let's watch the second one. And the entire movie is a guy playing the villain, the murderer from Silent Night, Deadly Night, the original. But it's not the same actor. And he's sitting in like a police interrogation room. And he's just recounting what happened in the first movie. And you think at first, oh, this is just exposition. And it's going to set the scene for a real movie that's going to happen. And then about... You know, an hour in, you realize, no, this is this is it. This is all it is. It's him talking about things that happened in the first movie. And then you watch clips from the first movie. And then to further pad it, they just add in this like five to ten minutes at the end where this garbage day shit happens. And it's nuts. Like just framing it in this this larger picture of all of this dumb bullshit. And it leads up to this just transcendent moment of what the fuck? How is this movie? It it's just yeah it, it like lulls you into a hypnotic state and then all of a sudden when that hits it's just like the most amazing feeling. <laughs> it's it's like I don't know like if if you're listening to I don't know a fucking Led Zeppelin song and some guys just like yeah it's the best guitar solo Zeppelin and they just song? play the guitar solo over and over. I I uh, uh, can it please be hot dog. <laughs> no? Yes, hot dog. So you're listening to hot dog and they just play their favorite guitar solo from hot dog and. You you lose the rest. This is a bad <laughs> analogy because I hate that song. Uh, the point is, if, if you isolate certain moments and you don't have the broader picture, it just it loses its magic. Yeah, and also and I don't want yeah like I, I don't want to I, I don't want us to come off as being like uh, people like the masses shouldn't enjoy it. But there's something about doing it in public specifically. You know, it's like um, listening to a really good album and then like. That are you know an album that you really connect with, and then hearing like a, the single in public all the time, over and over again, and it just sort of loses like what it meant to you specifically. Uh, there, there's something about that that public yeah. act that that yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know it diminishes that. No, well, I'm definitely a bad movie hipster. They they don't they didn't earn this. They can't <laughs> fucking have it. It's mine. I got a actually I got a good one for you guys. Um, I got I got a copy of this from uh, Severin slash Intervision. I'm, I'm working on a review right now, uh, but I recently saw something that I don't think has ever been released on DVD before called Beyond the Seventh Door. And mm. 
it stars like proto Tommy Wiseau and it, the the actor's actual name is like it is oh god what is it oh it's Laser Rockwood that is his god given name and like a buckaroo band he has this ridiculous yeah, and, and it's very – and in the movie's execution, it's very Ed Wood because Laser Rockwood, to the you know shock of no one, can barely speak English. So there's clear moments where he's just flubbing his lines, like just mouth diarrhea. And it, it looks like, like, uh, no, it looks like Asian Tommy Wiseau. Uh, yeah, it's basically Asian Tommy Wiseau. And then the, uh, the other part, the thing that really makes it for me – I mean, the movie is pretty entertaining on its own because it's so goddamn dumb and, you know, Laser Rockwood – but uh, there's there's an interview with Laser Rockwood from like last year or something that the guy is, is Laser spelled with an S or a Z? A Z. I think it's like L A Z A R. Ah, Lazar. Lazar, but I'm gonna go with Laser. But there's there's this interview with Laser Rockwood. And he's just rambling incoherently and James smoking cigarettes. And his teeth are like black and just falling out of his mouth. And <laughs> looking directly into this camera as they're interviewing them. And he's standing up and he's like, I will tell you how to be a great actor. You must be like a cat. And he just like rambles on about like cats and shit for like 10 minutes. And that's the special feature on this disc. Like that shit is fucking magic. And it's, and it's so nice hard to be to able to probably that. share that with friends. Um, not just be like you go. Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know. I don't want to harp on it, but you know, there there is definitely something to me about that privacy thing. Yeah, I mean, for me, bad movies. They you know, bad movies that I enjoy. They scratch the same itch oh, as yeah. good movies. That I enjoy. Like there is no difference. <laughs> fucking line because. I mean, for the same reasons that I I get excited about movies that you know uh, emotionally resonate with me. Um, or are, are just, you know, moving or reveal some sort of truth to me and are, are just masterful examples of what cinema can be when something is so dedicated to whether on purpose or not, just completely just being unpredictably oh, yes. fucking stupid and so foreign and so just outside of what we expect from movies. That is just as good, if not I agree. better. I agree. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's it's also I, I think it's interesting too, Sean, that you mentioned that you you felt that um, they didn't treat in the disaster artist they didn't treat Tommy Wiseau with like a a level of respect or that the movie wasn't warm enough because I think other than the beginning and the end, my biggest criticism of the disaster artist is um, they almost love Tommy Wiseau too much and they're afraid to to go into yeah, the Yeah, I, I, I think they love I, I, I think that the movie loves the idea of Tommy Wiseau too much, but uh, I don't think that it tries to understand anything about him, I guess is my point. Um, wh- yeah. Yeah, I'd agree. It's hard, to, it's hard to do like a broad caricature. I mean, it's I guess it's not, but he is. So when you're doing a faithful interpretation of what he is, then it comes across as caricature. And when you don't give him that depth beneath the surface, then it, it just does kind of read like you're laughing at him. And I, I'd agree. It doesn't really go into a lot of the nasty stuff in the book because he's, he's not a great guy. Um, 
And I, I don't know. It's just when you take that out of someone's life and you almost like whitewash it, then it feels so inauthentic and it, it doesn't make him feel like a real human that, that I as an audience member and, can uh, have great affection the, for. The Bela Lugosi sure. character is obviously not a great guy. Um, but man, like there's such a warmth to showing him. Uh, and I don't know how to like explain how you do that, but it's definitely there on, on, it definitely reads that way to me. Like you can make somebody who's, who can do like awful things and, and has like this darkness to him, um, and still get us on board and, and give, you know, empathy obviously is the word, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't I don't hate the disaster artist. Like I said, it was just kind of there and it was just kind of like a cute exercise. But my I I guess my issue is that like it's treated as like this awards thing um and and it it just seems to me like a bonus feature, like a um a weird just you just put it on Netflix like I said. Like I don't understand why like how just because it came out in December and just because like James Franco figured out like a really good like uh, impression or or whatever um, of him. Like I, I just don't understand why people are like it's so good. Uh, but I mean, whatever. Good for good for you guys that do. It just doesn't read like anything yeah. to me. Sure. Uh, one more thing that I kind of want to mention about just the juxtaposition of Ed Wood and the Disaster Artist, and is yeah. the premiere scene. Uh, so there's there's this scene towards the end of Ed Wood where they uh, they schedule this big premiere for uh, what would become <laughs> Plan Nine from Outer Space, and no, I think it was for Bride of the Monster. Yeah, for Bride of the Monster. Uh, so the, the premiere for Bride of the Monster, where they roll up in this car, and like one of the ushers from the movie theater comes out and he's just like, you guys got to get in there. They're tearing the place apart. And it's just this surreal scene of all these people just like literally like tearing the theater apart, throwing popcorn, just going ape shit for no discernible reason and not in a good way. And it's this total mess where pe- where they're grabbing at uh, Vampira and they're grabbing at Lugosi and and it's just this mess. And basically Ed Wood has to run in there, grab everybody and rush them out. They go to hop into their car, but there's people outside that have literally like stripped their car, stolen the tires, like ripped the door, <laughs> and then they have to get a get in a cab, and they all cram into this cab and squeal off, and then Bella Lugosi just goes, "That's <laughs> the best premiere I've ever been to." It's like that's fucking awesome, <laughs> and it, it's such a different feeling than the premiere for the room in the Disaster Artist because you have this moment where Tommy's just like, oh, no, they're laughing. And then they have this warm kind of like, ha, no, it's good that they're laughing. And it's, it is very like muted and it doesn't interrogate anything bigger or, or speak to anything bigger. Whereas that scene in Ed Wood, more so than almost anything else in that movie, really sticks out to me. Yeah, and that's so it, it's so inauthentic even to reality with the premiere of The Room. I don't believe, uh, unless I'm terribly misremembering, I don't believe that there was some sort of a full house showing that immediately embraced it as a raucous comedy. And uh, yeah. I don't know, there's just so much to interrogate there about his his reaction. It's actually something we touched on in the last episode where I, I, I was being asked if I, I thought the room was a successful film. Uh, and 
I thought it was it, it's a complicated question because it seems like something that Wizzo himself struggled with accepting it in that uh, in the vein of a comedy because it, it wasn't his intent and it, it, it's something that caused him a degree of pain and that's just not interrogated in the film. It's like for for yeah. thirty seconds he feels a, some pain before he immediately goes, "Oh, it's a comedy." <laughs> yeah, I was thinking of that too from from last yeah, episode. Um, the- I mean, I'm I'm. I disagree with you. Like I'm on Cuff's page of like, you know, if on a personal level, if it's, if you have fun watching the movie, it's a good movie. Um, but yeah, there's, I, I found that more interesting, uh, off screen, you know, this stuff about like how he turned it into a success. Like if he is a successful businessman, like, um, I think that that would be an interesting avenue to explore is like how he was able to turn this cultural product or this, this, personal failure into a cultural product. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. It, 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 there isn't, there isn't anything there besides like, okay, I guess it's good that they like it now. Well, yeah, well the, the ending is in the, of the disaster artist movie is heavily reworked from what happened in reality, because I think what I, I can't speak to how the reaction of the, of the movie premiere audience was, because that's actually where Sistero's Disaster Arden's uh, novel ends, um, right as the lights dim. Um, totally but right. these two college students, um, one of them named Michael M- Michael Rousselet, uh I've actually met and befriended him since I moved to L.A., they actually saw The Room at an art house theater in 2002 because he told me at the time he had just seen the uh, Royal Tenenbaums and he saw the trailer for The Room and he thought, oh, yeah, I just saw the Royal Tenenbaums. This is like another kind of like quirky idiosyncratic comedy and he saw it and was just amazed and appalled at how bad it was and he invited every friend he could to sneak into the theater just to watch this movie so he's he's kind of like patient zero on the room and tommy since then has sort of turned around and with this about face and said that oh it's actually a, a quirky black comedy like that was his true intention all along but it clearly wasn't yeah, the way they jackhammered that into like a single night revelation just felt so artificial and yeah. The, the, the third, the third act of after Sistero like quits filming and the disaster artist movie, that's kind of like where it falls apart for me. But uh, no, I still enjoy I still enjoy the first two thirds, aside from the opening. I but I think I do I, I do agree with Sean that uh, that room fans will clearly, get the most out of the clearly. disaster artist. Yeah. Uh, if you if you've read the book, yeah. maybe less so. But uh, I think <laughs> yeah, but you wouldn't you wouldn't have read the book if you're unless you were a huge fan of the room. So even that has a lot going against it. That that's very true. That's very true. I uh, I mainly wouldn't begrudge anyone who did enjoy it. I just again, I'm kind of with Sean oh. where when it's when it's brought up or nominated for best picture or something, it's like what what yeah. What do, what do we watch here? I I do not see this. Yeah, I don't Oscar Oscar nominations. I don't see uh, how that's happening. But all right, well, but um, I I have a question for you guys. Uh, sure. What I want to know, and we'll we'll start with we'll start with Coleman on this one. You're in the hot seat, Coleman. Actually, feel I it? literally you feel do. that warmth on your buns. I'm sitting next to a radiator. <laughs> oh, oh well, there you go. That makes mm. sense. Uh, if you were to let's say that you're a producer with a bunch of money, and you, you it already happened. Sean's there, and you decided that you are going to commission either a, a dramatic film or a documentary about 
another, you know, underground filmmaker slash movie, a la The Disaster Artist. Other than The Room and Tommy Wiseau, what movie would you like to see given the treatment of, say, an Ed Wood or The Disaster Wow, that really puts me on the spot. I was not prepared for that. (laughs) Um, Exactly. I guess... I actually can't say it's going to be about scenes with a big chair. (laughs) All about Nigel Dick hanging out with Roland Orzabal and Kurt Smith. And it's going to be amazing. Fuck. I don't know. That's a really good question. Um, I, you know, actually, no, I don't want to do that anymore because Woody Allen's a creep, but my, my gut was to be like Annie Hall. Uh, It was a very interesting story about how that all came together, but um, I don't know if we want that. And I don't know if we want that story anymore. Um, I mean, what what if, what if it was a dramatic movie about the making of Annie Hall, but uh, Woody Allen was played by Tommy Wiseau (laughs) and run. (laughs) That's the one. Jake, how about you? Do you have, have a movie a that you'd movie? like to see uh, be given the disaster artist slash does it, wait, wait, treatment? Does it have to be a oh, bad yeah, movie? hundred uh, percent. Oh, I okay. think it would help, but if if you don't want to go that route, uh, then that's okay. But I'm fishing for bad movies Get slash even. traditionally bad filmmakers here. Because sure, there's there's been a lot of great movies that have had just nightmares on production. But um, for me, hundred percent. Give me a Caligula movie behind the scenes. I take because that that was a real shit show. Um, oh, and, a real uh, and show. One of the many things I'm fascinated about that movie. Yeah, that too, and uh, and fucking with shit, and um, yeah. A lot, one of my fascinations with Caligula was just the fact that it was made, and uh, just like the like the behind the scenes, like uh, it was produced by Bob Guccione from. Uh, playmate magazine and he would like sneak onto the set with like a camera crew or a skeleton crew and just like two of his models and would film this very hardcore footage that he would edit into the movie Jesus. so yeah give me a caligula movie. yeah caligula bus <laughs> that's right i'll take that um uh, Sean, well, how about I, you? I don't I, I don't know exactly like my first instinct is to say like a neil breen movie like faithful findings just because i want to see like I want to see somebody play Neil Breen, um, but um, go with the, yeah, the broader but, Neil uh, Breen. Actually, uh, instead of suggesting my own, I would like to bring up the fact that um, the Les Blank movie "Burden of Dreams," which is the documentary of uh, Fitzcarraldo, is uh, much better than Fitzcarraldo. Um, so I guess, like, I I I think that. Yeah, please, uh, Sean. That, that hey, destroyer asked it in, uh, whenever Street Hawk uh, a seduction came out. So it's, it's, I'm not the first hot taker on this. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think that there's room. Also, Heart of Darkness, their Hearts of Darkness, or whatever that one is. That's very good. It's not. I'm not going to say it's better than Apocalypse Now, but it's very good nonetheless. Doesn't really matter which one's better. But I think there's plenty of room for. For for that um, for that type of, of of thing, these tumultuous sets, you know, like a, a Heaven's Gate documentary. Um, if there's if people are still holding on to that footage, Ooh. sure. Uh, Maros, how about you? 
Uh, I got a good answer. Um, Charles Band. Oh yeah, that's a good one. Go go ahead and elaborate yeah. on that. So Charles Band fronted uh, Full Moon features. As there's a one that predates Full Moon as well, but uh, yeah, he's he's kind of a shittier uh, version of Corman or Hoffman esque, uh, I guess you could say. I suppose so. Yeah, he's uh well, uh, Kaufman would be another one, although uh, he's just too self-aware, I think. Charles Band has worked with uh, a whole lot of interesting directors like uh Jim Wynorski who actually has sort of a a documentary of this nature made about him and uh <laughs> What is that? Uh there's that homoerotic director who who oh, has done a lot of full movie. Yeah, David DeCocco. Uh, you know, it'd just be interesting to see. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, find talk about Wait, your merry I, band of weirdos. I, found, I feel like uh, you could. I found you could have a, that in this I, I thought. I thought I'm reforming my answer. Um, I want to see the documentary of the making of Master of Disguise. Master of Disguise, anyone who's listening, of the day of shooting that occurred on 9-11-2001. That is the best piece of trivia that's on an IMDb trivia page. And this is real. Like, Go to Master of Disguise right now. Look up the trivia. It's on there. It's And one of the trivia things is... On the day of 9-11, while they were shooting, everyone stopped to take a moment of silence. I think for a long time, it was like my my background banner thing on my it's Facebook. Like a turtle it suit, was right? A screenshot of that. I am- yeah, it's like a turtle suit. There was a turtle suit, and then that quote next to it. Uh, that's that's a good. That's a very good answer. <laughs> <laughs> I think th- there's I a lot like of, Andy Dick to play him. Go here. I think. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure. I, I'm sure I could, could raise that funds. Uh, I I think like a documentary, definitely not a fictional movie, but a documentary about trauma films would be super interesting with Lloyd Kaufman and the fact that he's like launched a lot of careers in a lot of weird ways. Like Kevin Costner uh, was in a sex comedy directed by Lloyd Kaufman like a million years ago. Um, James Gunn, who went on to direct. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, Slither, Super, a bunch of other movies. Uh, I think he wrote Movie 43, which is Sean Glynis' favorite movie, in case anyone was wondering. He wrote and directed a segment. In it. Yeah. See? There you go. Uh, he's obviously like one of the biggest directors in Hollywood, and he somehow started off as like, you know, Lloyd Kaufman's lackey, and I, I think that's super interesting. As far as individual movies go, the one that really sticks out to me is Miami Connection, which is just completely batshit weird. Uh, so it was it was created it was made by this guy YK Kim, and he was he was and still is, to my knowledge, uh, a very well respected, successful karate teacher in Southern California, and he's got like a bunch of karate dojos all around California, and made a lot of money that way. And in the eighties, he just funneled all of his money into making this movie Miami connection. And he used all of his students as the actors and it's hilarious and it's got kind of a big heart and vice actually did a short like mini documentary about YK Kim and the making of Miami connection. And it's 
really interesting, but I, I'd love to see it expanded a, a little bit more. So that one's on my list. Well, right. Charles Ben's defunct company is called Empire Pictures, by the way. Yeah. There you go. Which they, they did Records? like Reanimator, several things like that. Oh, yeah. Charles Band, who uh, he did uh, like all ten million Puppet Masters. Uh, he recently, Doll Man, um, Doll he recently Man died in prison, right? Toy. This guy. That's a, that's like a, a three weeks too late, Charles Manson joke. Wow. Is that what that was? I didn't even. Yeah, I, I couldn't so. parse it. I'm trying. I'm trying to catch on to the Sean esoteric humor. Uh, that joke will age quite well, uh, much like a fine wine, or uh, perhaps more like a fine, uh, you know, pile of Somalian jenkum. Uh, which, if you don't know, that's when you bury your shit in a hole and then huff it. So, on that note, uh, I, I guess do you guys have any last thoughts before we do putovers? Uh, yeah, Martin Lando, R. Jesus R. Christ, that's one of the best performances I've ever seen in one. Agreed, hundred percent. Talking yeah. about, uh, I mean that, and uh, I, I should Edward. probably see more of his Prime stuff, but that yeah. and Crimes and Misdemeanor Lando are just knockouts. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. All right, boys, uh, it's time for putovers. Coleman, you're up first. I like putting on the How spot. about what I, I put over uh, episode 31 of the Optimism <laughs> Vaccine podcast, the Greencast, and uh, keep listening to Discourse uh, from the Big Chair, or one of our other uh, supplementary podcasts. All right. I'm going to make sure in the, uh, the little SEO tags for this episode, I'm going to put Tears for Fears mm-hmm. so we get those sweet, sweet TFF fan clicks. Uh, uh, I am Sean, putting, what are you putting over, over the square. Uh, so the square. What? I said Greasy I thought you were going to say the square, um, but go ahead. Uh, the square is playing in theaters now, uh, if you're lucky. Um, and it is a Swedish film by uh, the director Robert Uslan, or however that is pronounced. Um, but uh, it. It's a movie that is nominated or, or it's on the short list for um, uh, Academy Awards for foreign films this year. Um, and it's it's very good, uh, very dark comedy about uh, the bourgeoisie and how art and commerce are. Um, my cat, my cat just knocked over the mic. <laughs> Uh, we're, we're yeah, Hamill literally uh, just Hamill. landed on the mic. That's like he didn't just like accidentally knock it over; just like landed on it. Uh, but I caught it. Um, uh, but yeah, anyway, uh, it's about like how uh, art uh, is, you know, ha- in capitalism has been uh, mixed with uh, you know marketing tactics and things of that nature. And it's just very, very funny um, movie, and it's one of my favorites from the year. All right. Iris, what are you putting over? Uh, I I was filled with tremendous melancholy over uh, the <laughs> direction Tim Burton's career yeah. went post Ed Wood when watching that film. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to I'm going to put over anything that Tim Burton made before uh, before 1994, because all of his early work in watching this uh, in watching Ed Wood 
Jesus Christ, that guy was fucking awesome. And all of his early work is yeah. awesome and a ton of fun and great and fucking watch Beetlejuice and Pee Wee's I mean, Big I, Adventure and those. Myrosa, I wonder how you think. Uh, me Cisner. and Colton were talking about this watching Ed Wood, but uh, um, but I think to me, Batman, uh, which came before it, kind of almost like acts it it goes so well with uh, with Ed Wood to me, like it's. It's such a B movie, which is a great like little thing for this huge like property um, now at least. But it is this very artificial movie, and uh, it's like its own love letter to those B movies and those weird superheroes that were just thrown together from from unknowns. Um, I don't know. Uh, I I I owe his um, early work like another go through. Uh, you will be rewarded because he, he's a guy who just had such a voice and perspective and style and it just all fucking <laughs> went away immediately and Big I fish. don't know why and it makes me sad. What? Yeah, when's, when's, when's he going to make Big Fish 2 starring Big Willy fish Wonka the, pond. the pirate? <laughs> <laughs> what we're all asking for. Dude, uh, seriously though, like out of all the shit that he has made, Big uh, Fish no, might be the no, shittiest. No, no. It's just like <laughs> you have not seen Alice Wait a minute, whoa, hold on. <laughs> yeah, that's the that's correct answer. That is very bad, but uh, I, I don't know. There's something about Big Fish. Just it, it, it annoys me in the same way. It's like when people when you ask someone like, oh, like what's your favorite book, and they go. Mitch albums, the five people you meet in heaven. Like I immediately have this gut reaction where I'm like, I think I want to skin you and wear you like a coat. And I don't know if that's natural or not, but that's that's how I feel. And I feel the same way about Big Fish. I just I can't deal with it. Yeah. Anything he made after Mars Attacks can just fucking die in a fire. Yeah, I th- I think I, I don't know. Like if somebody said to me uh, if I was like, oh, what's your favorite movie? And they were like. Oh, it's Willy Wonka, and then I would be like, "Oh, the, you know, Gene Wilder," and they'd be, "No, no, 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 the the Johnny Depp one." I would think there was something like I would think they were, you know, like, "Do, do you have a closed head injury of some sort? Are you okay? Do you need to sit down?" Whereas Big, I feel like that can legitimately be someone's favorite movie, and that upsets me on a very deep level. Well, Cuff, if, if someone answers Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, then you're probably having a an inappropriate conversation with a seven year old. <laughs> That's the story of my life, man. Uh, uh. That being said, Jake, what are you putting over this week? Well, first, I want to say I guess that concludes our uh, Sharking <laughs> the Jump episode of Tim Burton. Yeah, we, we did. Um, but um, I'm putting over Showgirls. Um, <laughs> like, most, more, specific, more specifically, I'm putting over no, the, movie, the Paul Verhoeven movie Showgirls. I'm putting over the uh, special feature on the Blu-ray. Uh, it's the uh, it's an audio commentary by a showgirl super fan named David Schmader. He's a he's a writer uh, living out of Seattle, and uh, he used to host these uh, screenings of showgirls and uh, thinks it's ironically, obviously, one of the greatest movies ever made. And his audio commentary is such a delight because you think if you hear like a fan commentary, you kind of. I there's like a sense of an illness I get to my stomach at the idea of somebody just um, harping over everything they love. But his commentary, he's actually very funny and very witty. And um, part of his commentary is just how he's explaining that uh, Paul Verhoeven and Joe Esterhaus were paid so much money 
to make literally every incorrect artistic decision and put it in the movie. And he describes the whole process of watching showgirls as like watching a butterfly turn into a caterpillar. But uh, get yourself a copy of the 15th anniversary of Showgirls on DVD or Blu-ray and listen to that commentary. It's amazing. What an anniversary it was. I got a bunch of putovers, honestly. Uh, first and foremost, I, I got I to gotta put over number one, uh, of course, myself. I, I recently turned 32 years of age. I want to thank Sean Glynnis for making the trip out for my birthday. Uh, I, and I want to I wanna disparage Adam Myros, who, who was not in attendance. Uh, but that's okay because you guys are all invited to my 33rd birthday. So as you know, uh, Jesus was was crucified when he was 33 years old. So for my 33rd birthday, uh, I'm going to be walking around in a loincloth. I'm going to get ripped as fuck. Like I'm going to be straight up like Catholic Jesus on the cross. And uh, I'm I'm expecting Myros to follow me around, and he's going to take a sponge dipped in vinegar and just place it in my mouth uh, every every once in a while. And at the end of the night, I want you to drive a spear through the side of my body. Uh, I can handle it. Excellent. That's great. Other than that, uh, I, I want to put over, you know, we've, we've been talking about some some fun movies that would be generally considered bad. I want to put over a movie called Bloodbeat, which was recently put out by Vinegar Syndrome. And Bloodbeat is, you might want to sit down for this, it is a French production that was shot in rural Wisconsin in the 1980s. Uh possibly around where Steve Coleman's parents live currently. And it is about an evil spirit who takes the form of a translucent blue samurai uh, who is summoned to this rural Wisconsin area uh, whenever someone has an orgasm. That's definitely not where my parents live. I was gonna say, like, I mean, yeah, that's poor Steve Coleman jerking off in his in his bedroom at home, and jeez, nope. you probably summoned a lot of samurai. Never had one, buddy. And his his mom was always like, "What are you doing in there, Steven? And he'd always be like, "I'm just summoning samurais, mom." God, <laughs> so does the samurai just like hang out or what? No, he he kills people. Oh, okay, but it's that's great. a crucial plot element. It's like. He looks like a cross between the weird shield things in uh, in Dune mixed with altered states. <laughs> like, it's just this blue, glowy bullshit. And uh, to the shock of no one, the movie makes literally no sense at all. Um, it, uh, there's no continuity. It's just it's a complete fucking dumpster fire. Uh, it, it, oh, it's a Christmas movie, by the way. I, I don't know if I mentioned oh. that. It's the holiday season, so it's appropriate. Uh, but yeah, it's it's inexplicably a Christmas movie. So there you go. Uh, when you're with your family, uh, if there's young children in your family, elderly people, sit them all down, show them blood feet, and you guys will have a great, great time, I'm sure. All right, gentlemen, uh, thank you so much for being on the show tonight. Uh, special shout out to Steve Coleman in town from Bloomington, Indiana, all the way in Michigan, uh, cuddling with Sean's cat next to a radiator. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do us a big favor. Go on our iTunes page. Rate us five stars. Give us a written review. Why would you, why would I do that, Steve? That's what you're saying to yourself right now. Let me fucking tell you, buddy. Let me tell you why you would do that. Because the more reviews we have and the higher our star rating is, the easier it is for people to find us on iTunes. And the easier it is for people to find us on iTunes, the more we grow our audience, the more we grow our audience, the more great things that we can do for you 
dear valued listener. So make sure you do that shit. Also, if you have any questions, concerns, comments, uh, if you just want to disparage Adam Myros, uh, just go to your your email inbox and send us an email, optimismvaccine at gmail.com. Uh, if you want to tweet at us, at Optimism Vaccine, if you want to tweet at us individually, you can tweet at me, at Steve Cuff. That's at Steve, C-U-F-F. At Mr. John, Glynis. where do we find you? What? Man, look at that. Pretentious fuck. Thinks you, thinks you got to call him? That's uh, at Colmania. Where do we find you on Twitter? K-O-H-L-M-A-N-I-A. That's right, baby. Uh, Jake, how about you? I'm at Jake Tropila. T-R-O-P-I-L-A. Uh, and if you want to get a hold of Adam Myros, well, he's not really on social media, so I guess, uh, I don't know, fucking send a carrier pigeon don't show to, up to Lansing. rural Michigan where he's <laughs> living on a farm. Don't show, just just show, show up to Lansing, go to a bar in Lansing, and just shout his name until he shows up. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'd be waiting a while, probably. Yeah. Oh, well. Uh, all right, gentlemen. Thanks again, and uh, that about does it. Mm-hmm.